One thing that's different coming out of the global financial crisis was that all investments were sort of level set and everything kind of got reset at, at zero and venture therefore going forward became really the best performing equity asset class. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Gopi Rangan. My guest today is David York. He's the founder and managing director at Top Tier Capital Partners. In the world of venture capital, there are entrepreneurs, there are venture capital investors, and there are investors who invest in venture capital firms. David is one of them. Top Tier Capital is one of the most popular fund of funds. We're going to talk to him about his journey, the venture capital ecosystem, the role of a fund of funds in this ecosystem, and what he sees happening in today's market. How can you prepare? What can you learn? about venture capital. David, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Hi, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Let's start with you. You grew up in Silicon Valley. Well, I spent most of my life here, yeah. But I was originally born in Idaho. My father's from that part of the world, and he was there helping his dad fix his family business. And ultimately, they wound that down, and my parents moved from Idaho back to San Francisco. It took over, actually, my mother's father's family business. And so they've been running it ever since. My brothers run it today. But I moved back down here when I was about three. And so I've been in the Bay Area since that period of time. Uh, went to school in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California, but became enamored with Wall Street in the early 80s. If you go back in that period of time, we were dealing with inflation then. <laughs> and if you remember from 82 to 86. Like high inflation at that time, right? Yeah, very, very high. high. Yeah. And the sort of high double digits. I think treasury bills, T-bills, so money market accounts, got to 22% in 1982. But that was when interest rates rolled over and started essentially the beginning of what's been a long, prosperous bull market for equities going back actually through to this most recent period of time where we finally had interest rates come back a little bit. That's what got me involved with Wall Street, got me involved with investing. I did spend a period of time going back to work with my father and realized that he probably was never going to retire. And so I went back to Wall Street so I could work for myself and ultimately uh, had an opportunity to build Top Tier as it is today. I want to talk about that. How did Top Tier get started? Well, the genesis was there was a firm here in Silicon Valley founded by a fellow by the name of Phil Paul. And Phil really began his investment journey working for a family office in the 80s. 1981 is when he joined the Hillman Company and was the lead investor in many venture capital funds in Silicon Valley on behalf of that family office. In 1991, he had an opportunity to acquire some of the investments he had made through a secondary transaction. And that was a seminal moment for secondaries. It was the largest transaction of its kind ever at the time he did it, and, and that started a firm called Paul Capital Partners. But because Phil was the lead investor at many of the venture firms you know today in Silicon Valley, he got asked by a very large sovereign wealth fund in Southeast Asia if he would help them gain access to venture capital, and that started the journey of what is now today top-tier capital partners. I got recruited from an investment bank here in San Francisco, Hamburg and Quist, 
many of you might not be aware of Hamburg and Quist, but it was one of the original technology investment banks that were here in San Francisco. And it's famous for underwriting lots of successful technology companies such as Adobe Software, Apple Computer, Amazon, Netscape, Genentech, and the like. I ran a business there that covered the venture capital community. So I was a very popular guy at H&Q during the 90s when the internet bubble was happening and companies could go public at 150 million pre. (laughs) And so we did a lot of work with venture firms, both here and around the world, to try to help them monetize their portfolios. And because of my clients, the venture firms and Phil's newfound investor, which was the Sovereign Wealth Fund trying to access venture capital managers, we decided to get together and build a venture capital fund of funds business. That really got off the ground in 1999. I joined Phil in 2000, and then we started building out a firm, which today is now called Top Tier Capital Partners. So you were initially enamored by Wall Street, and then you went to investment banking, and you made your way to the venture capital world, and you started Top Tier Capital. Why is venture capital interesting to you? Well, you can do a lot of things as an investor. You can buy real estate, you can buy bonds. I find it really invigorating to invest at the very front end of innovation. Venture gives you that opportunity. And then 98% of what we do actually is improving what was done before, be in healthcare or technology or even most recently in climate. And I feel if you're going to do investing, it's nice to have your money working in a positive way. So it's been an area for me to lever my relationships as well as my understanding of capital markets and help new firms and new companies get off the ground. Yeah, venture capital is the fuel for innovation. And I love working with entrepreneurs for that reason as well. One of the other things that makes it kind of fun, even though it's kind of sounds ironic, but because technology kind of compounds on itself, you do get this rebirth of new ideas and new opportunities very regularly, actually, if you kind of think about it. And the acceleration of that has kind of been amplified with what's going on with open AI and the like. You can see a world where we're going to be all doing a lot of different things in the future as technology continues to improve our lives. Yeah, pretty much every aspect of our life is touched by technology in some way or the other, and it's only going to get more and more intense in the future. The startups are at the forefront of this and VCs support that innovation and you are behind the scenes. Fund of funds and LPs are quite low key, but that is the source of all of the resources. I, to. I tell our friends we're the money behind the money. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What's the role of a fund of funds in this ecosystem? Well, to help people understand what we do, I try to explain them how they can buy venture capital. There's three ways that you could be active in the startup ecosystem. You could invest in companies directly with the JOBS Act that allowed people to put money to the tune of $25,000 into companies directly, which set up crowdfunding and the website AngelList is a byproduct of that. Then, you know, the other way you can do it is invest in a venture fund. That's a proper private placement. It requires a certain net worth. It's typically two to $300,000 of annual income. Those sorts of things qualify to purchase in a, a private placement. But a venture fund can give you a portfolio of startups. And so you diversify your risk. And if you have a decent manager, you can actually improve the rates of return opportunity for you versus the risk you're taking. Or you can buy a portfolio of funds. And a portfolio of funds, I kind of try to describe it as sort of a mutual fund of venture capital funds. Each fund has its own portfolio company. So think of it as a very diverse mutual fund of venture capital exposure. 
the funds that we invest on average have somewhere between 20 and 25 managers. It's closer to 20. Each manager typically forms somewhere between 30 and 60 companies. So you can build out a portfolio of a thousand companies very easily. That's how I try to describe people what we do. But the other thing we do is we provide access to the asset class that a lot of institutional investors struggle to access because they don't have the bandwidth and or time to get to know the market in a way that allows them to invest appropriately. So they'd rather outsource that problem to someone like ourselves, where we can provide them access, we can provide them a basket of exposure to the venture capital asset class, as well as returns that essentially, if we do our job right, should beat the benchmarks pretty meaningfully. I will have to argue that we've done that over the last 20 years pretty well. I have a lot of questions on the role of fund of funds in today's market and you know, why choosing venture capital firms and evaluating them is difficult. Sure. But before that, can you give a few examples of funds that you've invested in? Well, we've invested in quite a few branded firms. I mean, I think the best place to find that is on our website. But there are firms like Kleiner Perkins or Andreessen Horowitz. There are also firms in the life science space like Atlas Ventures or Abingworth. And then there are seed funds recently active with Initialize, with Gary. We've been active with A Capital and Ronnie Conway's activities. So just around different different segments of the market. In our history, we've invested over 600 different funds, represents about 185 different general partners. We have investments in China. We have investments in US and throughout Europe. We now have a product that's focused exclusively on Europe as well as you know our US core product. And so it, what we're trying to do is build what we think is the best performing portfolio of managers in the venture capital universe globally across our different portfolios. We'll also buy those managers in the secondary market. It's a market where limited partners can sell their interests to another limited partner. And that's a fairly liquid market today. You have to get used to the liquidity discounts, but there is quite a bit of liquidity there. And so from time to time, we'll find an opportunity that we think is too good to be true. And, and so we'll add that to the portfolio. And then about 10% of what we do is invest directly into later stage companies that these managers have formed over their history. And, and we have an opportunity to put money to work at what we think is interesting prices and interesting companies. You've been an investor in many old established VC firms like CRV and Battery and yeah. Axel and many others, and the new generation of VC firms like Haystack and B sure. Capital and many others like that. You've seen the history play out over the past couple of decades, perhaps. Why is it difficult to evaluate VC firms? I think the hardest part about buying venture capital funds is every time you spend time with a manager, you kind of think it's the neatest thing since sliced bread. And then you meet another one and then it's like, wow, that was neat too. And every once in a while you meet one that isn't quite so neat and that becomes obvious that that's something you should pursue. But in general, venture capitalists are great salesmen. So if you're just getting started in this business, you want to spend your time meeting a lot of people and meeting a lot of managers and getting a very good feel for where you want to put your money to work. That takes time. It also takes what I call just pattern recognition. We see for to 500 managers a year. For instance, I've already seen two today. And so it's part of our business to meet with managers. And then our other part of our business is to sort out who we think is differentiated. And that differentiation is the hard, the tricky bit, if you will, in venture capital. The branded firm 
could sound really interesting and very sexy to invest in. But if you aren't spending a lot of time in this ecosystem, you might not know that maybe the partner that was probably the driver of a lot of their success is retiring or the two managing partners are, frankly, going to divorce and there's going to be some problems within the partnership or, frankly, their strategy is changing and what they did in the past isn't really what they're going to do going forward. If you're not inside the ecosystem like we are, it's hard to pick that up. What I find with new investors is they tend to chase brands and what I would call popular names, and they don't necessarily know all of the ins and outs of those actual franchises the way we do. So some of the firms that were popular aren't necessarily going to be popular going forward. What questions do you ask them? I see that it's not a straightforward, easy process. It's yeah. quite involved. So what happens in the first set of meetings? What do you look for? Well, because we're very familiar with the asset class and also typically the people we meet with, what we're really trying to get our head around with a new offering is what the fund strategy is, what the firm's track record is, either individuals or the firm itself, and then how that track record marries up with that strategy. If both are very exciting, then we'll spend a lot of time sort of back-channeling through our ecosystem and our networks on whether this is a credible opportunity or not. That includes spending time with entrepreneurs, spending time with our co-investors with that firm, spending time with limited partners. These are all done via reference calls and the like. And this is all of the sort of soft part of our business. We'll do 10 to 100 of those types of calls to try and get to a conclusion about what's going on. What happens over time is you develop a reputation in the industry in a way that you're really being very picky on who you talk to and they are being very picky on what they tell you. But the information flow there is at the highest level and therefore decision making becomes a lot easier and cleaner as it relates to sponsoring a fund versus not sponsoring a fund. This sounds quite daunting, like 10 to 100 phone calls and reference checks before you decide. You iterate. So think about dropping a pebble in the pond and the rings that it creates. So you kind of start on the inside and work your way out. But for every call, there potentially is two or three more calls. And so you're trying to sort of exhaust those rings in a way that you have a very good view as to who you're sponsoring and how they will conduct themselves. The other thing about venture capital people don't quite understand because they think, oh, gosh, the performance is so good over there. Let's go put some money to work. It's a 10 to 15 year hold. And so you really have to find somebody that you think you can trust for that long a period of time. What I tell our managers is that if we commit to you, you know, think of this as a lifetime relationship, because if we do one fund, we'll probably do three funds. And if you stack each fund up, that's 30 years. So it's longer than most people's careers. So we spend a lot of time really making sure we have the people piece right. And that's been interesting to watch change over time as we get involved with individuals being solo GPs and the like. The relationship between a founder and a VC is already long. And the relationship between a VC and a limited partner is way longer. Like you said, it goes up to 30 years and perhaps longer. You mentioned strategy and track record. Well, if we were to reflect on the strategy for Andreessen Horowitz, we now know what is the strategy and it's constantly evolving, but we are able to understand. But for a new firm that is forming, the strategy is still very nascent. And the track record is also very early stages. It's not fully developed. And by the time you wait for track record and strategy to mature, isn't it too late? And in the absence of a mature strategy and a well-developed track record, what can you evaluate in the early stages, especially fund one, two, and three? 
So we do one to two first-time funds a year on average, I think. We do a lot of funds three and four, and they're similar but different. So usually the first fund is friends and family. The second fund's sort of the angel network that you've co-invested with. And so they're very small pools of capital, and they help you essentially learn your skills. So as you start Gobi Partners, let's say, for instance, you're going to convince your wife that you're going to go do this and explain to her because you've been doing it on the side for a while and how it's working. So she's agreed to let you do this for two years. And you go out and you ask your friends to help and you end up raising $3 million and you build a portfolio. It's maybe 25 companies. And that is kind of the start of the journey. You realize that you never had enough money. You don't have enough ownership. You're trying to figure out how to get this to scale. One of your companies morphs. It goes from 10 million pre to 300 million pre. And so that little $3 million is now worth, you know, 11. So you're like, okay, I think I might be able to turn this into something. So then you go to your angel network and you raise 10. That's fund two. And you kind of repeat what you did with fund one, but now you have a little more ownership, a handful more companies. You can see that your selection ability and your network is really starting to bear fruit. And then fund three becomes your first institutional fund. And it varies on the strategy. If you've decided there's two of you now as opposed to one, but usually that fund is somewhere between 25 and $75 million. And some people get those things raised very fast because they have a great pedigree and they know a lot of people and some, it takes a bunch of time. But in that case, that first institutional fund is for us kind of our fund one in that relationship. And we've done that. We did that with Initialize. We did that with Bold Start. We've done it with a bunch of people. And it's been where we've been able to help them institutionalize their firm, but also help them get in front of the right investor base and a variety of other things. We rely on your network through those reference calls. We call the entrepreneurs. We also call people in your network. We also rely on your investment ability with those first two funds as it relates to the strategies of fund three. Getting back to my earlier comment about strategy and and performance marry up for future activity. So that's fund three scenario, you know, three to four. Sometimes it's not. So fund three is not, you've gone from 25, you go to 45. (laughs) And that's a bigger, you know, re-up with friends and family. And then finally you raise an institutional fund. But it just varies. It's in that zip code, usually where people start to look to raise institutional capital and decide they want to make a lifestyle decision to be an investor as opposed to an entrepreneur or something like that. With fund one programs, usually that individual has some prior relationship with us and certainly some prior track record. So we've done three recent fund ones where we knew the entrepreneur or the individual from our relationships with the firm that he used to work at or investment activity that he was involved with. So there's some track record that marries up with this individual, and this individual is demonstrated to us over a period of time because of our prior history with them, that they're more than capable of building an institutional firm. Wesley Chan is a person that we helped early on, although we're not a meaningful part of his fund. We're certainly a big fan of what he's done. Steve Jang and Kanye Kindred are another group that we helped recently. Way back in the day, I, you know, John, John Callahan and Phil Black and I, they referred to me by somebody I trusted and we got to know each other and we helped True Ventures get off the ground. So it's something that we're pretty proud of. Some of the managers that we've helped and how they've evolved and 
it's usually has some pedigree of track record relationship before we commit capital, either by friends and family funds to turn into something and or personal relationships that will evolve into actual institutions. Thank you for that deeply insightful response. There's a lot of information there that how you think about this, how you think about the market. And your audience that want to start a venture fund, it's a journey. It took me 23 months to raise our first institutional fund for top tier. Now, this was during the internet bubbles bursting. My first week on the road was September 11th in 2001. Ouch. We finished the the fundraise. Now, I had the benefit of Phil Paul and Paul Capital as as a firm to stand behind, but point is, is that all of us go through this journey of fundraising. And uh, it, it, if it comes too easy, then you haven't really experienced <laughs> what it means to be an institutional investor, because it, 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 there's a grind in there someplace where you're questioning your abilities and, and the like. And so you just got to keep pushing if you really believe. And that's really what converts investors is that belief, that really that, that conviction. So it's a very long journey. In that journey, the first fund, second fund and third fund are more like Proving that it works, the strategy is in place, and the GPs commit that I actually like what I'm doing and this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Along the way, many GPs might give up or change their course and do something else in their career. Once that is passed, by the time they get to fund three, four, five, they are ready to institutionalize their LP base. They bring institutional LPs like foundation endowments and fund of funds. That is the sweet spot for you, although you do invest in fund one and two sometimes when there's strong signals that they came from another place with a strong track record or no references, or if you knew the GP earlier, otherwise fund three, four, five would be the best time for top tier to invest. What's the role of fund of funds these days? What I have seen is in the 1990s and early 2000s, fund of funds played a very big role in the creation of VC firms. 80% of the capital for first fund, second fund came from fund of funds. But now that's a very small portion of the total capital base for a new fund. Family offices are playing a more important role and they're going direct into funds. How do you see fund of funds playing in the today's ecosystem? Well, venture happens to be one of the few marketplaces where actually fund of fund strategy has economic value beyond trying to do it yourself. And the reason for that is that the market, like you talked about earlier, and we've been describing is pretty opaque. And so what we try to do is build a basket of managers that outperforms the benchmarks during the period that it was invested by a margin of two to 300 basis points. And we figured that if we can do that, essentially our overhead for the additional fees we charge for building that basket becomes more than justified because it relieves you of the ability to do it on your own as well as the distraction. One of the rules of thumb that people say about private equity is it's 5% of my portfolio, 50% of my workload, and 90% of my headache. And venture is kind of that on steroids, because especially if you're a large institution, because most institutions run their private equity portfolios with a handful of people the venture portfolio itself takes a handful of people. And inside those institutions, they don't have the economics to support having a handful of people on venture and a handful of people on private equity. So they typically decide early on how they want to divide and conquer. And a lot of times, because of their check writing ability, they actually decide venture capital is one of the areas that they'd rather outsource to an expert versus try and do it themselves. They figure that cost benefit is much greater to outsource than 
do it themselves. So I kind of believe venture capital, and especially our part of the venture capital ecosystem, will continue to thrive, especially with all the managers that continue to come out and try and get started. We also think venture capital is a growing activity around the world. And so we see an opportunity to continue to apply our craft, if you will, to other parts of the world, and which was the motivation that we had to set a business in Europe about four and a half years ago. Now, VCs, as they progress in their profession, they get better at selling. So it becomes harder and harder to evaluate when the sales pitch is so good. It's better to trust a fund of funds and buy a basket of funds versus trying to pick one fund at a time. Do you regret not investing in a fund? Have you missed an opportunity? Yeah, all the time. (laughs) It's It's not uncommon. And, you know, sometimes it's because you have silly rules internally or you just don't sync up. One thing leads to another and the fund gets raised without you and you know you should have been there and you weren't. Or the team that you started with isn't the team that actually drove the outcome. And by the time that's obvious, they're in funds three or four and and that ship has kind of sailed. And we've had that happen a number of times. We have a saying which we copied from uh, Bon French at Adam Street, which is you can't do every great deal, but every deal you've got to do must be good. So if you're around the hoop enough, and take that approach, you're going to end up with a pretty good portfolio. I want to ask more about this because this is such an important topic. As a VC, I look at so many companies and I every time I say no, I worry that am I missing out on the next big thing. What do you do when you do that? When you feel like you missed out on the opportunity? Do you stay in touch with them and try to get back into the next fund? Well, we, we always think of no as really not now. <laughs> So I carry that little little mantra when I raise money and somebody tells me no, I say that means not now. I also think the same thing with our managers and the people we meet every day. When we started the business back in 2000, we really thought that there was a schism between capital and essentially business building, which is funds, managers building a business or me building our fund of funds business. And so I took the approach. We had two plus customers. We had a customer, which was our investor. And so investor customers, and then we had investment customers, which were our our managers. And we came up with kind of service equations for both those clients and tried to execute on that consistently over time. Early on and after the internet bubble burst, most of the venture firms never really had the experience fundraising before because of how the internet bubble was working through the 90s. And You know, if you put a shingle out and said you were a venture capitalist, you could raise money. And so we spent a lot of time in the early 2000s helping our managers learn how to raise money and how what it took to raise capital and what it took to fill out a due diligence questionnaire and the right spreadsheets on track record and those sorts of things. That became part of our mantra as we worked with managers going forward. We've been consistently involved in helping our managers in their capital formation and organizing their term sheets and the like. As far as their LPs are concerned, we're constantly helping them with market analysis and markets and those sorts of things and trying to essentially earn our trust with them in a way that we can ultimately land a client. We just recently won a mandate from a large public pension fund here in the U.S. And I think there's a handful of us here that have worked on that account over the years and helped us build a relationship and amount of respect internally there that it became basically work to win the account as opposed to frustrating, miserable process. But it just takes time. And we look at both as two client equations. I can tell you every manager that we don't re-up with, we hope to have an opportunity to do so in the future, you know, or invest in. 
you're in the middle between limited partners and VCs and you're constantly building relationships with people on both sides. Yeah. So a no, it means not now. It's not a no forever. You are in a very, very critical position in capital formation. When you say yes, a lot of the good things happen. But over the past few decades, the venture ecosystem has evolved. Now there are solo GPs, there are sector-focused funds, and there are new geographies evolving. What are you excited about? And what are you cautious about? So I'll talk about the macro situation first, because what we saw with the internet bubble and we saw with the global financial crisis was coming out of the back of those two events. There was a new technology cycle forming, and both were material investment opportunities it wasn't as obvious with the internet bubble, but that really created social media and a lot of the social sort of web two companies. The iPhone helped with creating businesses on a phone, which was kind of an extension of the web two companies. With the global financial crisis, we experienced the start of really the march towards open source software and SaaS and the cloud with the enterprises as the enterprise essentially converted to where social media was. And both those things were great investment opportunities. The other thing that happened through both those periods is bandwidth became really ubiquitous in a way that that's facilitated those things. Today, what's happened is we've had a really radically quick price correction. If you think about where pricing is today versus where they were even a year ago. I mean, if you look at the internet bubble, it took us about three years to get a similar price, sort of price correction into portfolios that we have today. It's happened at about half the time it took after the global financial crisis. So we've had this really quick price correction. And then we've had the start of some really uh, material technology trends around artificial intelligence and machine learning, as well as the blockchain. And so I think both those things are going to radically change our lives in a lot of ways across some major pieces of GDP, both domestically as well as globally. And a lot of that innovation is going to happen at the venture capital workstation. So we're excited about the investment opportunity in front of us because of that. As far as how it's manifesting itself, what usually happens in corrections is you have kind of a reversion to the mean about where the source of truth is. And so I still think the major technology hubs benefit but they're not just Silicon Valley. They're Silicon Valley. They're London because of fintech. They're Tel Aviv because of cybersecurity. They're, you know, Asia is kind of a little bit confused because of what's going on in China. But I do think Singapore is going to benefit enormously because of what's going on in China. And then countries like Korea and Japan actually have an opportunity, again, because of what's going on in China. So we think globalization of technology is upon us. And we also think there's some material changes coming in a way that it's a great time to be putting money to work. So if you were to change one thing about the venture capital ecosystem to make it better, what would you want to do? It's a great question. <laughs> I always have like three or four of these things every once in a while. You know, I, I do think that we still need to figure out a mousetrap for structure about access to the venture space. And like I said earlier, Angelist has done a great job giving individuals access to companies and syndicates and skilled investors on an individual level institutions are kind of set in their ways around a limited partnership agreement. And I don't have a, a solution for that. But because if you if you sort of peel back the onion there, it works across a lot of asset classes in a way that it's hard to change one for the other, because our, the same limited partnership structures used in all kinds of industries from oil and gas to infrastructure to buyouts and, and the like. And so I do think just for what it's worth, that liquidity is becoming 
a lot less of a burden in the venture ecosystem because of secondary transactions that are available, both uh, at the company level as well as at the partnership level. And so that whole ecosystem is continuing to mature in a way that I suspect will have a very active gray market, very similar to what they have in Taiwan around private companies. It'll take some time and it'll be people that are super smart in that category and some people that aren't. But I do think that is going to continue to be a bigger and bigger part of our ecosystem. So it kind of takes some of the taint off of limited partnership structure. So I, I haven't, I don't, I haven't really given you any sort of solid answer, but it's, those are some of the things that are going on that I think about as it relates to our business. Yeah, as the cycle of innovation extends, what used to be a five, six, seven year cycle for a company from go from beginning to IPO, now that has stretched out and companies stay private longer and longer. Series A used to be the first round, now it's like the fourth or fifth round of funding. So in the beginning stage, it's already extended. And at the end stage, since companies go and go IPO, they stay private. We have thousand plus unicorns. The Wall Street has become a riskless place. A lot of that's been because of the ETFs of the world and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. But it used to be companies could use public markets to finance their growth. And now it, they basically use them to finance their liquidity. And so that growth component is now moved to the private markets. Yeah, And that's the, really the, what's facilitated the reason for these longer hold periods. I think a lot of that's regulation. I think a lot of it's tort law. And I think it's a lot of it is just uh, the riskless approach to life that the accountants and the the bankers and lawyers have taken on as they've tried to avoid tort law. So it is byproduct of the market. Usually when markets get a little bit more liquid, people take a little more risk. That's why we saw so many IPOs over the last four or five years. And that led us to the SPAC market and a variety of other things. But they sort of self-correct. Getting back to my earlier comment about secondaries, I do think that gray market becomes a thing. And it continues to get more and more prolific, especially as the mutual fund complexes get more comfortable of holding private assets. Most of the mutual fund companies today have changed their threshold for private market exposure from 5% to somewhere between 10 and 15. And, and so I do think that ecosystem is going to continue to kind of grow and become more commonplace. And so you'll have private desks doing investments inside mutual funds. A lot of the bigger ones already do that, but I just think that's going to become more commonplace and allow for this sort of private IPO activity that has gone on in the growth space to continue. But that's really the material change over the last 20 years. Venture capital will become a more and more attractive asset class as that happens. I think liquidity will become a little bit more reliable and then investors will become a little bit more comfortable with the whole because of the reliability of liquidity. And that that will attract capital to the asset class. The one thing that's different coming out of the global financial crisis was that all investments were sort of level set and everything kind of got reset at at zero and venture, therefore, going forward became really the best performing equity asset class available because of that performance and then the institutionalization of it based on the things I mentioned earlier around liquidity is that I think that will become a common allocation in asset allocation models in a way that it had gone away after the internet bubble burst. So Again, I do think capital's here to stay. It's not going to go up and down as much as it has in the past. And it's going to be more global. And there are going to be successful firms all over the world because of the liquidity profiling changing in the, in the ecosystem. David, we're coming towards the end of our conversation. And I have one last question. Do you have a nonprofit you're excited about? What about your community activity? How do you spend your time supporting local communities? 
So I'm at the other end of venture capital of a firm called Nest. It's a venture capital firm focused on the underserved in third world countries. And you can find it on my LinkedIn, but we have a couple uh, microloan programs. We help basically Eastern European communities, primarily in Poland and Hungary, but recently have done some stuff in the Ukraine, as well as people, communities in South America, from Peru all the way down to Brazil. Most of it's really around grants, but it's been fun to be involved with and watching the enthusiasm and success of entrepreneurs in those small towns and trying to start companies and employ people of minority descent and those sorts of things. And so it's been fun to be involved with that. David, thank you very much for spending time with me, sharing a lot of your wisdom, your practical experiences, managing investments at top tier, working directly with some of the leaders in the VC ecosystem. You've shared a lot of specific examples based on your experiences. I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Thank you. Pleasure. And it's great to see you again, Gobi. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.